This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to new and returning listeners. I am Danica Ramsey Brimberg and your host of this episode of New Books in Irish Studies under New Books Network. For today's episode, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Boyle, author of the recently published History and Salvation in Medieval Ireland. Welcome, Lizzie, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so uh, my name's Lizzie. Uh, I am lecturer in early Irish in Maynooth University in Ireland, uh, and I've been there since 2013. Uh, I teach the kind of language, literature, and culture of Ireland uh, from our earliest records up until the arrival of the Normans in the 12th century. Uh, Before that, I was at Cambridge University, where I did my postgraduate study and a couple of postdocs, uh, and I did my undergraduate degree at Glasgow in Scotland. Really interesting. So, and then those unfamiliar with your book, what is History and Salvation in Medieval Ireland about? Well, it's about trying to understand how people in medieval Ireland, or more particularly the the literate elites for whom we have evidence, um, how they saw themselves in relation to to world history as they perceived it, um, where they understood Ireland to exist uh, in in sort of chronological terms, um, and where the arrival of Christianity and conversion to Christianity um, in Ireland's history uh, where it took its place within the broader broader scheme of salvation uh, salvation history. And so uh, I look at sources that tell us uh, about how people in medieval Ireland were studying history themselves, uh, how they understood the past, um, how they drew on the Bible and classical authorities like uh, Erosius and Augustine and Eusebius to kind of construct their own understanding of global history um, and uh, to find strategies of placing Ireland within that that broader broader scheme. Um, So the book mostly focuses on sources that were written in the 10th through to the 12th centuries, uh, which we call the Middle Irish period. Um, And because it was an area that was relatively unstudied, I I had a chance to offer some new editions and translations of primary sources that that hadn't been published before. uh, And those are included in the book, too. Oh, so and then was it that not people not talking about it? Is that what inspired you to write the book? Not originally. The original inspiration from the book actually came from my teaching. Um, When I was appointed to my job in Maynooth in 2013, 
uh, I was uh, asked to teach a very vague module that had been set up in the knowledge that somebody new would be joining the department, but without them knowing what that person's um, area of expertise would be. Uh, and in the end, it was it was me who was appointed. Um, and this module was called Treasures of Irish Literature. And uh, there was sort of no definition of what those treasures might be. Um, so I decided that what I would do is rather than, than looking at some of the, the more predictable maybe sources that the students might already be looking at with up with their other uh, other lecturers um, instead I would look at some treasures that had never previously been translated before or hadn't been discussed in scholarship before um, so I began translating these uh, 10th century sources uh, for, for use in the class and discussion in the class and some of them were about King David and his sons, Absalom and Solomon. Um, some of them were about uh, the Psalms and the power of the Psalms in the early Irish church. And uh, the more of them that I translated, the more I realized that there was a, a book's worth of material there within these sources that hadn't really been um, incorporated in scholarly conversation before. So the idea from the book really came from that module um, and uh yeah, really the enthusiasm that the students had for this interesting uh, material that they'd never seen before. I really wish I could have taken a class like that. <laughs> um, so then for the listeners, why is it important that we focus on me medieval concepts of salvation and its relation to power and history, particularly in this period? Well, for me, coming from an Irish context, it, it's important to understand Ireland's conception of itself within the context of the wider world. Um, I think in scholarship, um, particularly in the 20th century, uh, people working in Irish studies were very, very focused on what they perceived as so-called native tradition, um, so-called sort of <laughs> allegedly indigenous um, traditions. Uh, and so there was a lot of... Uh, uh, historiographical focus on Irish material to the exclusion of the fact that people in Ireland in the Middle Ages were very interested in the world around them. Um, and in the first sort of decades of the 21st century, there was a, a kind of opening out, I think, really. Um, a lot of scholars started looking at, um, for example, Ireland's indebtedness to classical culture and classical learning. Um, so there's, you know, great scholars working on um, the concept of grammatica or the influence of, of Isidore, uh, the influence of Greek and Latin um, literature and narrative literature on Irish sources. And that began to, I think, open uh, things out a little bit, show that Ireland in the Middle Ages was outward looking uh, and not simply sort of insular and, and peculiar. Um, and I hope that, that my contribution is just sort of widening it out further still um, to look at how Ireland uh, saw itself in relation to, for example, the, um, the, the history of the Jewish people, the history of the Assyrian empires, the Persian empire. Um, so looking uh, one step maybe beyond the, the classical world uh, and into to the, the world sort of further afield. Um, and I, I hope that it's part of a, a broader process of opening out medieval Irish studies uh, to see it within a more global context. Um, 
And when we start to do that, I think that we see that people in medieval Ireland were thinking about history in the same way as uh, their neighbours in in other cultures on the on the European continent um, and in Britain, for example. So thinking of um, then these connections both within Ireland and with the wider world, then why was it with Ireland having its own unique history akin to other places? The why was it so important to reinvent then the narrative of Ireland? which seems to be, at least you mentioned the historiography, people are doing that. Why was it then, why was it occurring, I guess? So why was this so important in the early medieval world? Um, I think partly it was to do with the fact that when Christians in Ireland in the early Middle Ages looked to their, um, their holy book and their authoritative texts, they didn't see themselves in them. Ireland isn't mentioned as, as one of the sort of nations of the Bible. It's the Irish people are not mentioned as one of the big biblical peoples. And, and you know, there's there's a very passing reference to Ireland in Erosius, but, you know, Ireland isn't mentioned in, in many of the great sort of patristic authors and so on. So to me, as my understanding of the sources is that they sort of or an attempt in a way to locate Ireland within a broader narrative and find a place for Ireland within that broader narrative to write Ireland into salvation history um, and to, to connect Irish culture back with, uh, with the culture of their authoritative books and authoritative sources. Um, and that happens in a whole variety of ways, um, far far beyond anything that I could even explore in in the book. So, I mean, you could write a whole book in itself on the way that that's done in genealogies, for example, which was something that I didn't really get to cover in the book. But the way that uh, you know, sort of royal dynasties are, are writing themselves back into a biblical genealogy and and so on. It just is happening across um, so many different. Uh, elements of the intellectual world in medieval Ireland. Um, and it's part of, I think, an all-encompassing project to try to find Ireland's place within the scheme of uh, within the scheme of history. Um, and so I just took the opportunity to look at, at the, the range of sources that I did, which were mostly sort of historical verse um, and biblical adaptations and uh, short narratives about biblical characters uh, and so on. Um, in your response, you say uh, you use the phrase salvation history, which is a critical part of the book. What does that mean? So to me, salvation history um, was the fundamental Christian conception of history in the Middle Ages. Um, so if you... Uh, look to to the Bible and the kind of chronology um, that's offered there from creation uh, through to um, the the apocalypse that gives you the kind of scheme of of broad Christian history and the idea of salvation history is that God is is active within that history um, uh, like it says in the in the Psalms that God has wrought salvation in the midst of the earth. And that is the, the kind of concept underlying salvation history. And so um, it's, a, it's a, 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 an overarching conception of history that has a beginning with the creation. It has a pivotal turning point with um, the incarnation 
of Christ, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then it has an end point, which is um, the eschatological kind of uh, uh, side of things. And within that overarching scheme, um, the idea that sort of God's hand is is present in in history is manifested in, for example, the the rise and fall of empires and um, the uh, idea of translatio imperii, the movement of um, sort of global dominance from east through to west. So that at the time when these sources are being written, the perception is that Rome um, and the Church of Rome is the is this sort of dominant seat of of power. Uh, in in global terms um it's a very specifically christian view of the world and uh, a specifically medieval view of the world um but there is so much evidence for it being fundamental to the way that people in ireland understood um their place in history uh, the moment that they were living in in history um and so i think it's very fundamental to understanding their own worldview um to understand them and how they saw themselves within history. Were these universal, were these ideas then universal throughout the literature or the early medieval Irish world as, I mean, as far as we know, I know the evidence from the early medieval period can be limited. <laughs> yeah, it does. It seems to be a, a continuous thread from our earliest sources um, in uh, surviving from Ireland, both in Latin and in, in the vernacular. Um, it's there are changes in emphases over the over time so one of the the key arguments i think that i made in in one of the chapters of the book is that um in the 11th and 12th centuries we start to suddenly see a, a more of a concern in medieval irish sources with thinking about empire with thinking about sort of imperial imagery and and um, the the history of empires in the world that seems to be something that emerges only really in the in the 11th century um, before that the emphasis tends to have been more on kingship I suggest and uh, particularly um, the kingship of Israel and the the frequent use of King David um, as a, a kind of archetype of, of good kingship, um, but also Solomon, his son as well, um, the importance of figures like that. Uh, so, I, so I argue that there is a shift from an emphasis on kingship into an emphasis on empire, but that doesn't change the, the fundamental framework, which does seem to be this overarching scheme of salvation history, which, which appears in my view to be a constant from the earliest sources in the seventh century through to the the latest ones that I look at in the book, which are from the late twelfth century. So, thinking about that continuation um, in the book, you discuss certain parallels between Irish and Hebrew figures. Was that done for similar reasons? Well, the that's actually a very big question in a way because. Um, you get a lot of different ways in which parallels are drawn between Irish figures and Hebrew figures in um, early Irish sources. Um, so you, you get, for example, just sort of straightforward, maybe sort of typological um, connections. I give an example in the book where King David is um, characterised very deliberately, I think, um, to be reminiscent of the Irish uh, 
character Cuchulain, and Cuchulain is altered and made to to resemble King David, to so to draw sort of connections between uh, the two. But there's also something more a different phenomenon going on, um, specifically with regard to St. Patrick, who is, you know, very, in in an extensive number of sources, he's very deliberately um, characterized as a kind of Moses figure. Um, I discuss in the book uh, some of the ways in which that's the case, um, the way that Patrick is is reshaped to be characterized as, uh, as a person who brings law to his people in the same way that Moses uh, brought the commandments to the to the Jewish people. Um, the, you then start to get other kind of similarities drawn between Patrick and Moses. Um, in the in the uh, hagiography about Patrick, he becomes increasingly Moses-like um, to the point where uh, the most sort of, I suppose, uh, developed example of that that I discuss in the book is a is a note that we find in a couple of uh, places where it's claimed that Patrick was himself descended from Jewish stock and the the note claims that Patrick's ancestors had arrived in Britain um, as a result of the persecution under uh, Vespasian um, and it was because, according to this note, it was because of Patrick's descent from the children of Israel that he was able to bring the power of, of baptism and faith to Ireland. Um, so that sort of f- a fabrication of a, of a Jewish ancestry for, for Patrick um, is sort of the, the most uh, highly developed end of the, the spectrum, but the, the entire spectrum involves reshaping Patrick along um, increasingly uh, uh, sort of Moses-like uh, lines, or, or you know, increasingly like a Moses-like uh, figure. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the drawing of parallels between medieval Ireland and um, ancient Israel is uh, really multifaceted, and and it, it finds its expression in a whole uh, range of different sources. Um, and as I note. Briefly, in in the book, it's also uh, a very real phenomenon visible in early Irish law because early Irish law is itself heavily indebted to Levitical law um, and uh, to to biblical law more generally. Um, So it's both a a creative thing in terms of the literary depictions of of people like Cuchulain or St. Patrick, uh, but it's also clearly a social or structural in preference in a way for the Old Testament over the new, um, which is reflective of the very real influence that Levitical law has on the development of early Irish law in the Middle Ages. So I'd say it's, that's a, it's a big question because it's, it's something that finds expression in a whole kind of multitude of, uh, of different ways. Thinking of these and these um, parallels between these figures, well, I'm sure the audience is familiar with the traditional definition of translation. Could you please elaborate more on translation as a cultural transfer? Yeah, okay. So we, there's lots of um, nice examples in in the sources that I'm talking uh, about, for example, in chapter two, which is the chapter where I talk about these narratives about David and, and Absalom and Solomon. 
Um, so these these are stories that are, are indebted to a, a greater or lesser degree to biblical narrative. Um, and uh, if we take sort of, for example, the, the narratives that talk about the relationship between David and Absalom, um, the broad outline of Absalom rebelling against his father and uh, the subsequent uh, death of Absalom, who, who uh, famously gets uh, his, his hair gets caught in a tree um, and uh, he's sort of hanging there, uh, stuck in the tree, um, uh, his hair entangled uh, in the branches. Um, you know, that's all there in the, in the biblical account. Uh, which in medieval Ireland people would have read in in Latin translation. And if the stories were were straightforward translations in the sort of traditional sense that we understand translation to to move something from one language into another, um, then the story we would expect to to stick very closely to the biblical uh, narrative, and that would be a simple translation. Um, but rather, what I suggest is going on with these sources is translation, as you say, as a kind of cultural transfer. So we get little details where the the author writes that. Um, uh, uh, David issues instructions to his son. Um, Absalom and but he writes these instructions in Ogham we're told which is the the native Irish alphabet the uh, Irish script uh, that's used for um, kind of monumental uh, and uh, kind of so it's, it's a bit like runic script um, if you're not familiar with Ogham uh, and you get other instances where um, David is is characterized as kind of almost uh, like He's rather than being as a young man, the the sh- the shepherd with his crook. He's more like uh, Cuchulain with his with his hurling stick, and uh, you know. So you get these things that are that are very Irish culturally. The the imagery, the use of um, the idea of them using ogham, the idea of them being like young Irish warrior men, or whatever. Uh, that's translation is cultural transfer which is what's going on in these texts so that they're not just being translated from Latin into the Irish language, but they're being translated into an Irish cultural milieu where people write in Ogham and they play hurling and they um, sort of, yeah, adhere to these sort of medieval Irish cultural norms. In your book, I loved reading about the interweaving and about the influences that like of both the Old Testament onto Irish figures and then ir- elements of Irish culture being interwoven into the um, the biblical passages as well. Um, with such an emphasis on particularly on figures as well as um, elements from the Old Testament, why do you think that the Old Testament was such more a powerful force than, say, the New Testament? That's a difficult question, and it's... One that I I don't know that there's necessarily an, an easily available answer for. Um, so I'm I'm far from the first person to to observe the, for example, the legal indebtedness of Ireland to um, to Levitical law um, in terms of of both law and liturgy. Um, as early as the the 1960s, uh, scholars had commented uh, commented on what they perceived as a preference for the Old Testament in early medieval Ireland uh, over the New. Um, I think 
it's possible to overstate that. Um, there are quite a lot of sources pertaining to the New Testament um, in Ireland that still haven't been edited and translated. So it's possible that that, that, that picture might adjust somewhat anyway. Um, but it seems to me that the fact that, um, as uh, the historian Donacha O'Corrine argued in, in the 1980s, that the early Irish clerical elite, the, the um, educated church elite, he suggested had modelled themselves on the Levitical class. Um, and so, you know, if we accept his characterization of that, then maybe it sort of grows from there that, uh, you know, other aspects of society would also be drawn from um, from Old Testament models. Uh, that's certainly one, one possibility. Um, you know, it may be that it was simply... more easier to identify with the kind of uh, sort of pastoral agrarian societies of the Old Testament, perhaps, um, in terms of self-identification, as opposed to um, what might have been perceived as a more sort of uh, Romanized urban uh, elite sort of type of early Christianity, perhaps, uh, because Ireland was never part of the Roman Empire. It was uh, sort of influenced by Rome but never part of Rome um, so perhaps just the fact that of the lack of urban centers the lack of um, kind of Romanized bureaucracy and so on may just have made um, the Old Testament societies seem somehow uh, more um, sort of applicable to, to early Irish society um, but as I say it's it's a difficult question that I don't think we're at the stage of being able to answer yet. And as I say, it may be the case that further study of um, other uh, other sources might balance out that perceived weight towards the Old Testament and and show that the New Testament was was equally important, perhaps. Within your answer, you talk about um, how Ireland was an agrarian society. With a lot of these studies, uh, these stories, they were written by and for a literate audience. So was it just, were these stories available to other individuals at all or any form, do you think? Or is it just, say, the elite situated within this salvation history? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I so yeah, clearly the sources that I discuss in the book were written at ecclesiastical centers. Um, some of those ecclesiastical centers were, were fairly uh, substantial, very large uh, centers, um, but they weren't urban in, in any meaningful sense. Um, so how do these sources then get sort of communicated to uh, broader audiences? And the fact that they're being written in Irish as opposed to Latin would suggest that they are perhaps intended for a broader audience, including a lay, uh, a lay audience. Um, one of the things that is worth noting is that that by the time um, most of the sources that I discuss are being written, so in the 11th and 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, we are starting to get the development of towns in Ireland, thanks to the Scandinavian settlers who established uh, Ireland's urban centres like Dublin, Waterford, Limerick and so on. Um, but one of the key areas that I suspect might have been a way of... of um, 
sort of identifying the potential audience for some of these texts uh, is what I at least I sort of tentatively argue or sort of raise as a possibility um, in uh, in the book is that some of them might have been intended for the purposes of educating royal young men um, or aristocratic young men um, because some of the narratives and especially those sort of about David and, and Solomon and Absalom you know they they seem to contain lessons for kings uh, some of the the narratives, that I discussed in in chapter three, which are sort of seemingly, I think, pedagogical narratives. Um, They have, again, sort of lessons for for kings. Um, So as I say, there's not enough evidence to to be certain, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that some of them might have been uh, written for uh, aristocratic young men as part of their education, part of their formation, uh, what is expected of, of young royal men. Uh, and they may have may have been among the the secular audience for such narratives uh, beyond the immediate sphere of the ecclesiastical centres in which they were they were clearly written. Which it's thinking about these and the audience who was reading them were these then texts ever um, affected by the um, current events going on, whether from the beginning of them being written to the because you've got the. Viking Age settlement and rulership going on, as well as sort of towards the tail end of the text you talk about, we sort of see the beginning of events like the Crusades. So were these power religious struggles ever influential in these texts, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think that, I mean, because the nature of the sources, they the kinds of things being written, it changes over time. And I think... Um, they are being influenced by both what's happening on the ground within Ireland itself and also what's happening further afield. Um, uh, so, for example, I, I discuss a little bit about what appears to be an increasing interest in urban centres in these kinds of uh, biblical sources at the same time as Ireland is developing urban centres itself. So you suddenly get these um, much more extended writings about the city of Babylon, for example, and Babylon's architecture and its its you know um, its inhabitants and its buildings and its in its history, and and that seems to emerge into the sources at the same time that Ireland's own first cities like Dublin are uh, are developing. Uh, and and growing, um, so it does seem that that what's happening on the ground is is shaping uh, the kinds of sources that are being produced. They do seem to be responding to to current events, and I wonder even if the increased interest in um, the idea of the movement of imperial power and and the history of uh, as I say, both sort of the Babylonian and Persian empires and so on, uh, whether that is in some way influenced also by what's going on um, in the the beginning of the sort of crusading era uh, and so on. Um, there are other sources that I don't talk about at all in the book, but um, where people have, have certainly inf- uh, inferred a, a, an influence from um, crusading literature, from uh the, the fashions for Arthurian literature, for example, uh, those things are clearly having an influence on Irish vernacular composition at the time. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised that it's also having an influence on these sort of more uh, learned and historical texts that are being composed at the same time as well. 
That also leads me to my next question, which is, were the texts ever altered to make them more relevant to a current audience, or is there perhaps more going on? Um, in the, some of the ones that I look at, they are certainly altered. Um, we have oftentimes multiple um, versions of what's clearly the same text, but it's being changed over time. Um, in the examples that I look at, the changes are... Um, more sort of uh, sort of pedagogical in a way. Uh, so I ha- have one narrative uh, about David and Solomon that's very clearly intended in the earliest version in which it survives um, to be a a kind of legal um, precedent. So it's it's a story about David and Solomon, but it is, establishes the principle of why in early Irish law inheritance should be divided three ways uh, between the Lord the kin and the church. Um, so clearly, and that's the earliest version in which it in which it survives, a 10th century version, and it seems to function as a, a sort of etiological story for this legal precedent or legal principle. Um, but then we have another version from a couple of centuries later where it's still the same sort of story and the same scenario, uh, except rather than exemplifying the legal principle, which isn't really mentioned at all, instead it becomes actually about the power of miracles and about the the, the power of blessings to, to confer miracle, miraculous um, uh, consequences. So the clearly the, the legal pedagogical purpose has disappeared and it's become a more sort of edifying or devotional kind of uh, story and that change must have something to do with with intended audience uh, function, um, uh, who is in, intended to be to be reading or hearing this story. Um, but it's quite a dramatic change in function of of the story. Um, so we see these kinds of changes all of the time um, that clearly are responding to immediate pragmatic considerations, like what the the story is being used for, what the narrative is being used for, and who its audience is. And understanding these audiences, uh, you discuss early on in the book, and so we're circling back to the beginning again, is that early Irish writers are portraying Ireland as the next chosen people, but the relationship with Judaism is actually, if you reading the book, it was really interesting. It sounds far more complex. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, so... I was focusing on sources that, um, if you were to read them in isolation, would seem to have uh, an exceptionally favorable or exceptionally positive view uh, towards Jewish history, Jewish culture, um, and the, the and this idea that uh, the Irish people are the are in some way modeling aspects of their society on. Um, the, the accounts of uh, uh, of the Jewish people in in the Pentateuch, for example. Um, but yeah, I, what I wanted to do, for example, at the beginning of chapter one, was just to show that it is more complex than that, and that there is it's not a, a, a sort of simple or straightforward, favorable view um, of of Judaism as a whole. Uh, rather, it's laden with, um, first of all, some quite sort of sadly predictable sort of anti-Judaic rhetoric that's quite common to Christian texts um, from 
the time. Uh, so this idea that uh, the Jewish people have forfeited that they, you know, they may have been God's chosen people, but they have forfeited that position um, through the the uh, crucifixion uh, of Christ, and and that therefore um, the Irish can take up that mantle. Um, so as I say, that's a, a kind of uh, formulaic anti-Judaism. Uh, but even beyond that, there were a few instances that I drew attention to where we have very overt anti-Semitism, and that there's poetry. Uh, being composed. I give the example of a, a poet uh, in the 8th century, Blafak, son of Coubreton, uh, who really writes a, a quite offensive verse about the Jewish people as being a lesser people. It's, um, as I say, it, it goes into outright anti-Semitism. And so I think it's important to be aware of that context before I discuss the sources that are um, more f- favorable or, or positively disposed to emulating aspects of, of Jewish history um, to see that it's not a straightforward picture. There's a complex relationship um, uh, and uh, some of the, the problematic um, rhetoric and even you know, outright offensive hostility um, that we unfortunately encounter in, in other European literatures from the Middle Ages as well, uh, that those things are there in the Irish texts too. And so therefore, yeah, the, the, the situation is, is more complex than simply being unusually predisposed to, to celebrate and emulate Jewish history and culture. It sounds very, yeah, with all the different aspects going on and both, it's both in a appreciation but there's also very negative portrayals within the text as well so you have this it's an interesting combination going on there so in the acknowledgments you mentioned that you finished oh sorry sorry i was just going to say that it's just made all the more sort of peculiar in a way uh by the the lack of any Jewish communities that we know about in Ireland in the early Middle Ages. As far as we can tell, um, there were no Jewish communities in Ireland until the arrival of the uh, the English invasion in the in the late 12th century. Um, and we have one record of a, a Jewish embassy uh, uh, arriving at the court of a, of a king um, uh, in the south of Ireland, Merchtoch uh, O'Brien, and uh, the annals record the arrival of this group of Jewish emissaries, but we're told that they were immediately sent back across the sea again, uh, which suggests a real uh, a rebuffal of whatever advances they, they might have been making um, to to the, the, the king and his court. And so this real... You know, all of this, both the positive and the negative, uh, this whole discourse on uh, Jewish history and culture is taking place in a total absence of real Jewish people and communities in Ireland, which is um, strange, I think. It sounds strange to me as well. Um, In the (laughs) acknowledgement... In the acknowledgments, you mentioned that you finished writing the book during the ongoing pandemic. What was it like to finish writing a book at, during this time? Uh, difficult. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend it. 
Um, I was uh, homeschooling my daughter at the time. Uh, she's a teenager and she's uh, getting stressed about exams. I didn't have any access to a library. Uh, it was a bit of a nightmare, but I was fortunate in the sense that I was already in kind of fairly advanced stages. Like I, I had all my research done really. I'd been working on this project for quite a few years. Um, and I was at a point where I could just let go of certain things and say, right, okay, I, I can't get to a library. I can't follow up on this. That's just going to have to go. And uh, I just concentrated instead on, on getting it done um, as, as best as I could. Um, I was also uh, in the very sort of immediate aftermath of, of my dad dying. And I had sort of, you know, gone through years and years of him sort of saying, oh, how's the book going? How's the book going? And I was, you know, there's always something else that had to be done and the book wasn't making progress. Um, and when he died in January last year, I was just sort of so disappointed with myself at not having finished it so that he could see it, uh, that I just thought, right, damn it, I'm gonna, gonna finish this book. And so I did in sort of bizarre and chaotic circumstances. Uh, and I, <laughs> I hope that people don't have to continue writing books without access to libraries and, and other facilities to, to get the work done, but uh, it got done. And that was the important thing for me. And I'm sure that he is very um, proud of what you did. It's an incredible book. Um, what is the one thing that you hope readers take away from reading your book? I hope people would take away from it the fact that Ireland in the Middle Ages was not some sort of peculiar outpost um, in in the sort of far corner of uh, of Europe, but rather that there was a really active intellectual culture that was interested in the world around them. They were interested in what was happening, you know, in Babylon 3,000 years earlier. They were interested in what was happening in Jerusalem uh, a thousand years before they were writing. They were interested in the world. And although their, their source of, sources of information uh, may have been limited to, to the Bible and to patristic authorities and to, to very rarely uh, more recent sort of uh, testimony, they managed with that limited information to, to really develop a sophisticated um, conception of, of the rest of the world. They were thinking about the rest of the world um, to the best of uh, the knowledge that was available to them at the time. Um, and I think that's what I would hope that people would take away from the book. Um, and then do you have any future products, uh, pro products, any future projects or anything else that you'd like to mention on the podcast? Uh, well, my next book is coming out in March. Um, it's uh, something completely different. Uh, I was uh, approached um, by uh, Penguin Ireland to write a volume of essays that combine kind of memoir and personal life writing with medieval, uh, mostly Irish history, uh, with a little bit of medieval Wales and England and, and a little bit of Frankia thrown in as well. Um, so it's something completely different. The title is Fierce Appetites, Lessons from My Year of Untamed Thinking. Um, and as I say, it's an attempt to marry my own kind of life experiences with the, the subject matter that I that I study. 
Um, so nervously throwing out my first non-academic uh, book there in March. Well, I'm I'm excited to read that one as well. Uh, thank you so much, Lizzie, for joining me today to talk about your book. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Elizabeth Boyle's book, History and Salvation in Medieval Ireland, is available now through Routledge as a part of their series, Studies in Early Medieval Britain and Ireland. Her book, Fierce Appetites, My Year of Untamed Thinking, uh, will be published next year by Penguin Books. If you'd like to hear more episodes, subscribe to New Books Network, uh, New Books on Irish Studies on the New Books Network website, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. Until next time, stay stay safe and keep reading. Thank you again for joining me.